Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, yes, this week has used his legislation and changes the Police Act tinkers with it a little bit as the fight with the Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke continues over the police transition in Surrey. When are we going to see an end to this standoff? What are the plays that are going to work? This all over the RCMP going to a Surrey police service, the transition that is underway right now and has been underway. Let's talk about the very latest developments and get a better grip on who has the power as it stands right now, because we do know, despite this legislation on Monday, it's also going to go to the courts. That was the decision made by the current uh, council under the direction of Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. Well, let's bring in Linda and a Surrey First Councillor. Good morning, Linda. How are you? Good morning, Bruce. Doing well. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm trying to figure this out. And as I kind of said in talking with some others this morning, it seems like that old game of uh, rock, paper, scissors, who has the power in this whole thing? Is it the city of Surrey? Is it the province of BC? Or is it uh, one side, in this case, the city, bringing in the courts to decide? I don't know. Where are we? Who has the power? What do you think? Well, I think the one thing that I know for sure the residents of Surrey are losing, it's costing them dearly as we go through this uh, process. And, you know, it's very unfortunate. And I do hope that uh, with this legislation that uh, this will bring it to a conclusion and that uh, we will get on with uh, moving forward on the Surrey police transition. We've been focused on policing in Surrey now for five years at the cost of almost everything else. Okay, well, here is the... um I don't know what you call it. It's not a tweet anymore. But uh, on the platform formerly known as Twitter, now X, uh, the mayor of Surrey and the office of the mayor did uh, put this out. And I quote, my team and I were elected on a platform of ending the proposed police transition. That was flawed from the start. We said it would cost millions more than estimated and that recruitment efforts would fail. Both of those warnings have come true. Now, there's plenty to back that up, Linda. Um, Do you think that, uh, I mean, this is something to be ignored? Well, certainly the mayor was not elected uh, solely on uh, going back to the RCMP. We know that the vote was very, very close. And like municipal elections in Surrey, the turnout is very, very low. That was not a mandate for her to, uh, to transition back to the RCMP. Or I would also add when... Uh, Doug McCallum was elected in 2018. He didn't have a clear mandate either. What's very unfortunate is that the residents of Surrey weren't consulted. They've never really been consulted uh, in terms of what, whether they want the Surrey Police Service or they want the RCMP, and it's costing them dearly. It's too bad. You know, I've been calling for a referendum gosh now for about four years and it hasn't come to fruition uh, but would have been good had it been because we would have decided this once and for all and we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in today. You know I think this is going to be one of those case studies that's looked at uh, in well even in uh, universities and political science classes when they take a look at local government and what can happen 
And it's sad because it's much more than that. Uh, I'm a Surrey resident, as you know. Uh, I'm paying, going to be paying for whatever happens or doesn't happen or what exists right now. And the reality is uh, we've got two police forces, one that's going to be the force of jurisdiction, one that currently is the force of jurisdiction. And the transition seems to be all kind of messed up. There's no other way to put it. Um, what are you hearing just from people, just from people? What are they saying to you right now about this in terms of how Surrey is being governed? They're very, very upset about it. Uh, they feel that uh, we should have uh, stuck the course um, and that we right now we just need to get on with it. Um, they're, you know, they're not as focused on it, I don't think, as the politicians are. They just want it aside. They want to know that uh, public safety is good. And, you know, I can say with either police services, Public safety in Surrey is good. You know, both have their, you know, unique um, uh, characteristics. But at the end of the day, the residents just want this behind them. And they want the politicians here in Surrey, the councillors and the mayor, to get down to business. We've had a year now um, under our mandate, and we still haven't dealt with a lot of the road issues. Our schools are overcrowded. We've heard lots about Surrey Memorial Hospital and the problems we have there. We know about the lack of housing. We need to be focusing on these issues and partnering with the provincial government in a more positive way to get some of these things dealt with. You can still walk and chew gum at the same time, though. Certainly, uh, all those other issues that you mentioned are not being uh, affected by the Surrey police fight or struggle, are, are they? They absolutely are. You think of the amount of staff time that is dedicated to working on either transition or detransition. It's horrific, and they aren't able to focus on all of the other issues that we have here in, in the city of Surrey, nor is council. It seems each time we have a council meeting, you know, we're talking police or we're talking about police in the media. We're not doing what we need to be doing in terms of focusing on getting more housing built in Surrey getting our roads fixed, getting better transit, because it all comes down again to the police. And, of course, the police transition with us being in this you know, stalled position, it's costing the taxpayers, as the mayor has said, $8 million a month. That's $8 million we could be spending on building rec centres, improving our roads, or doing a lot of other things. Yeah, $8 million a month, and that's going to continue probably until the uh, case goes to the courts to decide. Who has the power in this? Is it the courts or is it uh, the people that pass legislation like through a police act, meaning like Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth? Who do you think has the ultimate say? Well, I really can't comment on that. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know intimately what the legislation looks like. Nor, you know, can I obviously speak on the case uh, before the court. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But uh, this still exists, and uh, you know what? It's a big enough issue that Mike Farnworth uh, took a look and said, hey, I guess uh, we have to change the Police Act. So this doesn't happen in the future, not only in Surrey, but in other jurisdictions down the line. I get it. It's kind of a an approach that is, hey, this is my power these are my moves. This is what I'm going to do to take on Brenda Locke and, uh, and what seems to be, in possibly his opinion, a stubborn approach. But at the well, end of the day, um, you know, didn't Surrey actually, uh, you've got a council that did 
vote a certain way. You've got a majority on council right now that said uh, no to this transition. They reviewed the plan of the transition along with yourself. And um, the consensus was, and the majority on council was, uh, no, we don't want it. Doesn't, isn't that kind of like an insult uh, to council? It absolutely is not. Councils can't come in and just arbitrarily make these kinds of decisions. What happens now in 2026? You know, had Minister Farmworth not put this legislation in place, do we switch back again to a different police force? I think once you've made a decision of that magnitude, first and foremost, the residents should have been consulted. We should have had a referendum. We wouldn't be dealing with this in the way that we are right now. It's not a decision that can be arbitrarily switched back and forth, back and forth. Councillors and the mayor need to be responsible with taxpayers' money, and this is not showing responsibility. Each time you make a change, it costs taxpayers more and more money. And, you know, it's not good use. We need to be building things, not building things and taking them apart and trying to build them again. Indeed you are. Look out a window. Pretty wet for most areas of the south coast as this atmospheric river continues. By the way, also raining in Kamloops and most of the Okanagan? dry, except for the very northern tip right now. By the way, I am Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. And one other piece of legislation that came out of Victoria this week is that one that is going to crack down on Airbnbs and the like. The BC government announcing legislation to rein in short-term rentals and deliver more homes for the people. Yeah, the idea of turning short-term rentals into homes is at the core of the newly introduced legislation to regulate the rapidly expanding short-term rental market, basically through apps and through the web. By the way, this is the quote from Premier David Eby in bringing this in. He says, anyone who's looking for an affordable place to live knows how hard it is. And short-term rentals are making it even more challenging, says Eby. He says the number of short-term rentals in B.C. has ballooned in recent years, removing thousands of long-term homes from the market. That's why we're taking strong action to rein in profit-driven many hotel operators. Okay. Create new enforcement tools and return homes to the people, the people who need them. Interesting. Is it going to work? That's my, uh, my big question. Is it even going to make a dent in the housing market, especially in areas like Vancouver. Let's make some sense of this. Peter Waldkirch is the director of Abundant Housing Vancouver. He's a Vancouver-based lawyer, advocate for more affordable, sustainable, and livable cities. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Got to ask you that obvious question. Okay, legislation, everything solved? <laughs> Hardly. And look, I really think that regulating short-term rentals, at, you know, in app hotels, makes a lot of sense. And these new regulations are pretty good. Um, you know, in particular, the requirement for the apps to share data uh, with the cities and the provincial government, that makes a lot of sense. And so do the increasing enforcement tools that are being created, like higher fines for people who are breaking the rules. But we really do need to keep this in perspective. Even the government says there are about 28,000 short-term rentals in all of BC. And a lot of those aren't toxic, right? They're just somebody who's renting out their place while they're on vacation or whatever. So even if we got rid of those, they won't result in new homes. 
But we have a housing shortage of hundreds of thousands of homes right now. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, in order to restore affordability by 2030, we need to be building at least around 150,000 new homes every year. So, you know, this regulation, even if all of them come back onto the rental market or are introduced to the rental market, it's not even a drop in the bucket. At most, it's a month or two of the supply that we should be building every month. So, you know, it's good policy, but it's just not, uh, you know, short-term rentals aren't a major cause of the housing crisis, and this isn't going to really solve, uh, make a dent in the housing crisis. Well, I think it's a good point. I mean, when you talk about 20,000 as opposed to 150,000 needed per year, Year, it isn't a drop in the bucket or even a drop in the bucket. I mean, this is a very small thing. But that being said, perhaps, Peter, it is the optics of it. You've got to do something. Airbnb does exist in a city where really there is a housing crisis. And I would venture to say, and this is just me guessing, that Airbnb is only a little fraction of that short-term rental market And I think, and I don't know about you, Peter, but I think that there would be a whole bunch more that we have no idea about, and I'll go a step further, we'll never know about, even with this legislation. Yeah, well, I agree with that. And there's all, like, basement suites are, there's a whole sort of, um, you know, sort of shadow market of basement suites that aren't fully regularized, that aren't in compliance with building codes, or people aren't paying the proper taxes on them, you know, their income tax for the rental, you know, there's a whole sort of world out there of this. And I really think, the, uh, you know, we have to look at the root cause, and the root cause um, is the, is a housing shortage, right? Uh, that is, that's what makes it so profitable for people, that's what makes people willing to look for, for anything they can to, to make an extra buck on their mortgage, or for any place to live, even if it's not a very great sort of basement suite that's not compliant with safety codes and things like that, right? So we need to really think and think about the uh, the root cause that's causing a lot of these things. And the same thing with the short-term rental problem itself, right? Um, uh, the, the root cause, I think, is that we have, uh, in Vancouver especially, a very severe shortage of hotels, right? We have a big convention industry. We have a big film industry. We have a big tourism industry. There's a lot of demand for hotels, but it's almost impossible in this city to build new hotels because there's no zoning for it basically anywhere. You can't just sort of go invest, go, oh, I'm going to build a new hotel here. The city makes that almost impossible. And so we need to really think about the root causes of what's causing this sort of scarcity in hotel spaces and in housing. And I think we can do a lot better. We can have abundant housing. We can have abundant hotels to support our economy and jobs. But it really will take political leadership to reform um, some really broken planning processes that we have in the city and across the province. Yeah, and let's take a look at some of the uh, key focus areas. There are three of them with this piece of legislation. Um, Increasing fines, strengthening the uh, tools for local governments. Uh, By the way, increasing fines is a huge swack, uh, uh, you know, getting fines that are three times what they were before. Returning more short-term rentals and long-term homes to the market and establishing provincial rules and enforcement. Now, Peter, the one thing that I did not see, and maybe it's just me overlooking it, uh, this kicks in for municipalities that have over 10,000 people. I think of areas like the Okanagan, Asuyas. Guess what? Under 10,000. Never going to hit that mark. Whistler? Yeah, Whistler uh, made the mark. Uh, It's just over 10,000. I looked it up. It's got about 12,000 people. 
Um, but there are some of these areas where this legislation does nothing. And those areas still have people who need housing. And they still will have Airbnbs. Asturias, I think, is a prime example. Peachland in the Okanagan, another prime example. Yeah, I mean, look, we still even don't know everything that this legislation is going to do. The government has said they're going to introduce additional regulations to exempt some additional properties. And in their press release, they mentioned timeshares and fishing lodges. And a place like Whistler, um, it's actually kind of funny. It's a bit of a different type of a legal city. It's called a resort municipality. It has sort of special rules that are supposed to encourage tourism and stuff like that, right? So it wouldn't surprise me if there's some sort of carve-out for that, too, maybe. I mean, who knows? We'll see. Um, But I think this really goes back to sort of the, the core issue that so long, you know, that's one of the good things this legislation does, because absolutely, we're in a housing crisis and we should be prioritizing the uh, the people who need the housing most, which are people who are, um, you know, who are working, um, who are living in precarious housing today. Absolutely, that should be our priority. But again, we really need to keep it in perspective. So like, for example, going back to this enforcement question, Vancouver today already has stricter regulations for short-term rentals than what the province is proposing. Uh, and even so, the, the city estimated that in, uh, you know, the, these regulations were introduced in 2018 and in 2021, they did a study, they did a report, they found only about 510 short-term rentals were returned to the regular market. So again, that's great. Those are 510 households uh, that have a home that otherwise wouldn't. So that's fantastic. But again, we need to keep it in perspective. And so long as we are sort of fighting over uh, a small pie, the crumbs from a small pie, there's going to be people who are really suffering, people who are working in Vancouver and smaller communities across the province. We need to urgently find ways to make the pie bigger so that we aren't sort of in a zero-sum game. We could be in a situation where I think we're where we're all winners, where there's enough housing for everybody, where there's enough hotels, there's enough job space for employees, everything. But we need to really uh, attack the root of the problem, which is this sort of scarcity micromanaging mindset that I think has uh, uh, dominates our, our planning and thinking in a lot of our cities. Yeah, you know, Peter, uh, everybody understands that there is this housing crisis and we've got to do something about it. But there are people running Airbnbs and short-term rentals that are not sitting back in their lazy boys eating bonbons. They're not super rich. They're not, uh, you know, cashing in to uh, become a, a big business like a hotel. They're trying to cover their mortgage, and they're trying to make ends meet like everybody else, and they're also facing higher interest rates. Do you think that this is taking one group of people and, uh, you know, helping them with ignoring the realities of people that are even looking for help to cover mortgages? Oh, I definitely agree that so long as we have this sort of extreme scarcity in housing and in hotel space, these sorts of policies are basically just shuffling the deck on the Titanic, right? You're going to pick a slightly different set of winners. You're going to pick a slightly different set of losers. I mean, it's the same thing even with interest rates, right? I remember just a few years ago, people were blaming low interest rates on the housing affordability crisis. They were saying, oh, it's so easy to get a mortgage. People are bidding up. You know, money is too cheap. Everyone's bidding up the prices. We need to raise interest rates. Now interest rates are going up and uh, everyone's saying, oh, it needs to lower them, right? So as long as there is a scarcity, all you can do is pick some different winners, some different losers. Whereas, again, we need to really increase the size of the pie so that everybody can be a winner, which I think should be possible in our system. And I definitely do feel bad for people. Really? um, Everybody can uh, be a winner? Do you you think that (laughs) is possible? I, I love what you're saying, but is it possible? 
Well, I definitely think that, you know, I think it's important that we, I believe in, in Canada and our system. You know, I think that we can live in a more prosperous society, one with stronger cities that afford more opportunity to people, that welcome people. I am the child of immigrants in this, uh, in this country who arrived in this country in the 60s, uh, and they were able to build a, a strong family and life for themselves. That was better than the one they, they left behind in their, in their home countries. And so I'm a believer in that. I think that Canada can, uh, and our society can, rise to meet the challenges we're facing. Uh, we can get building again. We can build the homes we desperately need. I think that this is sort of possible for us. But the first step is to sort of, I think, to sort of uh, to, to get over this mindset that, um, that, uh, that you know, the, it's hopeless, that we're just, you know, um, that we can't fix these major problems we're facing. I, I think we can. I, I, I need to be an optimist about these sorts of things. As Bruce Clackett in for Mike Smith, you know, it has been five years of legal cannabis in this country. And it's interesting when you mark things on a calendar and then go back in time and try to figure out what the thinking was back five years ago. You may recall that five years ago, people were excited about the business prospects of this whole legal cannabis uh, industry, so much so that there were initial public offerings for cannabis producers uh, with uh, skyrocketing prices. Uh, It was almost like a new gold rush. And on the consumer side, people were kind of excited because for the first time in years, outside of purchasing legal medical marijuana or cannabis, you could actually you know, use it for recreational purposes by going to a retail outlet or a government store. That was five years ago. Where are we now, five years later? It's interesting. It's uh, it's one of those questions where you almost have to check in with some of the pros, people like our next guest, Deepak Anand, who is a cannabis consultant and principal at ASDA Consultancy Services. Deepak, thanks so much for joining us. Five years, hard to believe. You know, when I uh, checked the calendar, I thought, yeah, yeah, five years ago, a lot has come and uh, gone in those five years. Um, Are you surprised? Well, time certainly flies by very quickly. Thanks for having me and and very happy to be on here. But uh, no, time certainly seems to have have flown by very, very quickly. I think the key line here is that, you know, the sky really hasn't fallen post-legalization, which was a concern by many in the country. So that's the punchline. Yeah, I think, though, what, what I mean by are you surprised, are you surprised that five years later, that uh, the landscape of what we see with the industry is the way it is? I mean, there aren't super rich companies like we thought there would be one year in, um, and there are still sales that are in the black market. Yeah, look, I don't think anyone was expecting, you know, the black market to have gone away on, on sort of year one or even year five post-legalization. Uh, certainly there are a number of challenges in, in the industry, but I think from a public policy perspective and the fact that Canada still is the only G7 country to have legalized cannabis, it's still a, still a significant milestone, right? I think you've gone from the illicit market having 100% uh, hold on the space to most recent stats from Civic 6 Canada saying 68% of consumers are purchasing cannabis through legal channels. I think that's a pretty significant shift. 
Deepak, you're quite right, and I guess we look to an example in the states. Uh, of course, this is a federal issue in Canada, a state-by-state issue uh, when it comes to the U.S., but if you look at various states uh, and how they operate, it's quite a bit different than Canada and quite a bit different than what we have in B.C. So if you take a look just at B.C., where have we gotten it right in terms of our system for retail sales and where did we not get it right? Let's break it down. Absolutely. So I think generally, uh, you know, I think on the cultivation side, BC has done some pretty significant work. So what I mean by that is there has been a number of, you know, small, what we would call craft cannabis cultivators operating in, 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 in remote and, you know, far distant places such as the Kootenays and Kelowna and Kamloops and Gabriela Island that have now all been licensed. Uh, and BC's played a pretty significant role with the federal government ensuring these entities get licensed. So I think, you know, we've done that and done that right at, at a federal level. Um, as far as it relates more on the retail side, I think certainly cities like Vancouver embracing cannabis retail very early on has, has have been pretty significant. Uh, and, you know, retail has, uh, the prevalence of retail has certainly helped expand or, or enable that shift from the illicit market to the illicit market. However, when you look at large cities like Surrey and Richmond, I think where we've gotten it wrong is five years post-legalization, those cities have zero cannabis retail stores. And so I think, you know, that is a huge area uh, of concern. And it's not as if people that are residing in, in those cities specifically aren't accessing cannabis. You know, they're accessing it through illicit channels, which then promotes further, you know, the, the black market. And it certainly promotes things to go underground and uh, policing and public safety not having visibility into where that cannabis is being procured from, who is selling them, et cetera. And so it creates problems for these cities. So I think those are some of the challenges that we've seen. Well, uh, even when it comes to retail of food items, Surrey shoppers don't necessarily stay in Surrey. They go to places like Langley and Delta and downtown. Um, and same thing with uh, Richmond. I mean, if you live in Richmond, you certainly have the ability to get things in other places. So I don't know. I, I've always questioned that local uh, regulation. But be that as it may, do we have um, the ability right now to have uh, cannabis delivered to those people that live in areas that have banded, like Richmond and Surrey? Delivery. There, you know, it is possible uh, through certain channels. Of course, there's the online channel to the BC Cannabis Store where you can have things delivered. It's, it's certainly not the most effective e-commerce delivery solution. I, I seldom think governments are able to put those into place. It's certainly not an Amazon-type model. But, but there are certain, uh, you know, retailers that will deliver. However, you know, we know that most people that want to have access to cannabis want to have, you know, the ability to be able to go into a store, often within walking or driving distance to them and be able to pick it up and have conversations with bartenders. I think, you know, we've seen this across across the country where these retail deserts that are forming up like city like Surrey and Richmond are not really beneficial to the to the consumer. I think, you know, you will see when stores open in these cities that they are uh, you know, have significant volume that are pushing up because people are looking to access these through uh, legal channels. We're talking with Deepak Anand, Cannabis Consultant Principal at ASDA Consultancy Services. Uh, five years after the fact, uh, we do have legalized retail cannabis sales in this country. Uh, Deepak, um, 
you know, if you live in Richmond or Vancouver, as we're talking about, uh, legally, you're not going to be able to see those storefronts. Are the suppliers, the retailers still interested in trying to get into those markets, get into areas where the municipal or municipalities have said no? Or are they just uh, kind of given up at this point saying, ah, oh, forget it, we can set up our store on 200th and Langley and uh, still get the same market? No, absolutely. There's there's a lot of interest by retailers to actually participate in, in places like Surrey and Richmond. Surrey most recently had a number of public hearings on this issue, and there was tremendous interest on behalf of uh, retailers that operate elsewhere to open up locations in those specific cities and municipalities. Uh, so I'd say there's, there's a lot of interest on, on behalf of retailers. The other thing I've noticed, uh, just out of curiosity, journalistic curiosity, I'll call it on my part, when I've gone into places in California or Nevada into their retail stores, I've noticed the products are a whole lot different and the uh, dosage is a whole lot different for uh, allowable amounts of THC and uh, CBD. Where did we ever come up with the idea that gummies in this province should have 10 milligrams in a package. Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's the difference between a state-by-state regulation and a federal regulation. I think where this came from really was when the federal government began looking at this almost, you know, seven, seven years ago, uh, they did a number of visits to places like California and Colorado. And the feedback they got from those regulators was it's always easier to expand regulation and make it easier and make more products available than to take it back. So in other words, if you put a hundred milligram gummy on the market and, and a novice cannabis consumer was to was to consume that and have sort of, you know, undesirable outcomes, uh, it would be much more difficult to control versus, you know, having a limited 10 milligrams amount that would be able to be increased over time. Certainly, you know, we've seen this now post post five years of legalization that there haven't really been any of those significant health uh, adverse health outcomes that have been, you know resulted uh, as a result of legalization. So now it's really incumbent on the federal government to try to ease that, right? So I think there are consumers that want access to higher THC limits, and that's certainly the federal government uh, needs to enable. Uh, it is, in fact, part of consultations that are currently ongoing. There has been an expert panel that has been formed by the federal government to review this issue. And when you look at the key findings of, of, of this panel that just released a report last week, one of the, one of the findings was that the THC limits uh, should be increased. So, you know, I think that's something that you can reasonably expect from the federal government. Okay, so factor fallacy right now. Is it good stuff on the black market? <sighs> I, I, I think the legal market has, you know, some, some great product. I think there's a lot of transition. There's still some products that are, are much better on, on the black market. Okay. And do you see that changing our governments and regulators and those that take a look at things like, uh, you know, the, the amount of allowable THC, CBD and uh, products? Are they saying that, uh, yeah, okay, we have to open up to get the full market? Do you see that as a move or a trend? It, it certainly is a trend. I think that I, I think the bigger trend here is that the consumer is definitely the winner. I think the consumer is the winner from both a price perspective because we've seen the price of cannabis, both on the illicit and the illicit market, come down significantly, and that benefits the consumer. You know, in the end, I think from a product variance and a quality perspective, we're also seeing the consumer win because there's a real drive on both sides of the market 
to be able to entice that 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 consumer. And so I think as a result, we're starting to see a lot of product uh, and good product be made available. And the the product that isn't that great, we're also seeing it not move. And you know, you're seeing a lot of licensed producers now have excess inventory, and that's because the market is really you know, voting with their wallets and not really, uh, you know, prioritizing uh, substandard or lower quality products. So the consumer wins uh, in all instances. It's been a rocky ride on the uh, the markets, uh, you know, the publicly traded markets for the companies that uh, have got into the cannabis uh, game. Why is it so rocky? <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, it's typical for any new industry. We certainly saw this with, with dot-com. Prior to that, we saw this with telecom. I think, you know, what it really boils down to is, is the fact that there were some bad actors and there were certainly some companies that were set up uh, at a much significant scale than what the market has been able to bear. And so there was a lot of overbuilding that went into this by some of the bigger public companies uh, that have since kind of had market share be depleted. And I think that's where we're starting to see the micros and the smaller craft cultivators really start to win. So. I think that's been one of the challenges. But but regardless, I think when you have a $5 billion industry today in Canada, that was effectively zero five years ago. And that's, you know, something to celebrate. Also, what I would say is when you look at consumption numbers, you know, they're certainly trending upwards. And so we will see cannabis as a as an industry continue to remain main, mainstream and also grow over the years. So, you know, the industry is, is not going anywhere. I think you will see actors that, perhaps weren't set up correctly, uh, start to disappear from the market. But generally, I think the market will shake itself out. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Glad to have you with us as the atmospheric river continues. Hope you're staying dry. Myself this morning uh, took the dog out at 4 o'clock in the morning. Pouring rain, the dog, of course, third day in the row that he's done this, stands there, does nothing for his business as I continue to get soaked. Feet are dry now, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's that time of the year, and it's going to be like that for months to come. Reality. Uh, here's another reality, and it's something we've been talking about this morning. It's the housing crisis in this country. There is a new report out showing that Canada is building fewer homes today than during pandemic or the height of the pandemic during the economic shutdown. Of course, interest rate hikes are behind the collapse of the new housing market. Well, the Progressive Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has a full report on this. And we're going to bring in to kind of unravel some of the findings the senior economist David McDonald with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Good morning, David. Great to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. There are two questions that come to mind because this is a national report, and I'm curious about Canada on the whole, but also the Vancouver market. So let's just start with findings for the entire country. What are we seeing? Fewer houses being built. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this is one of the impacts of higher interest rates. Uh, it squeezes buyers of new houses. So, you know, maybe you thought you could afford that $600,000 house a year and a half ago, uh, and now you can't make the mortgage payments anymore. So maybe that's not a house you're going to continue to buy or look for. 
that's one side, and this is going to affect both households, but also businesses who, say, wanted to buy an apartment building, for instance, that was recently built. Uh, it's also help, It's also affecting builders. Uh, so builders, uh, you know, they, they don't get the money up front for a new house that they're building. They might get a deposit, but they still have to build the house. They have to carry the cost while they're building the house uh, and then sell it at the end. Well, those carrying costs are a lot higher now than they were a couple years ago. Uh, and there's the concern that they might not be able to move that house at the end. And so all of those pieces come together in this decline in new residential construction. Uh, it's, it's quite substantial, and it's reduced new residential investment in new residential construction um, to levels below where they stood during the pandemic. And this is true across all the different housing types. So, you know, we think like single family homes or semi-detached, those are both well down compared to the pandemic. Uh, row houses uh, aren't quite as bad. They're down a bit, but not quite as bad. Uh, and apartment buildings are down as well. Again, not quite as bad as single family homes and semi-detached, but uh, still we're just seeing across the board decreases. It's a bit more dramatic when you compare to the start of the rate hikes. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, the, the broader point is that there's not, you know, government policy is pushing towards let's build more houses. Uh, the Bank of Canada is using interest rates, which is pushing the other way to build less houses. Well, supply uh, being the big issue here uh, in that part of the equation. Let's work with an assumption here. And I'm going off everything I've read so far. Um, I think interest rates are going to stay the same until March. Um, if we work with that, and that's just my belief. We don't know. But if we were to work with that, that means the same pressures are going to be on. And this reality that you're talking about is going to exist until March. What are we going to see in terms of people needing a place to live? Is I mean, people aren't going away. They'll just move from one area to another. But the, the problem exists everywhere in the country. So where do we go? What happens? Yeah, so this is the big question is how do we deal with this uh, big decline in, in investment, in residential investment, and particularly in areas where you want to be able to provide more affordable housing. Think of purpose-built rental or row houses. Um, you know, there's plenty of single-family homes already. There's much fewer purpose-built rental and, and row houses that, that might be steps for people to, to get in or to rent while they're, you know, while they're saving and so on. Um, so, so the question is, how do we get out of this? And even if we go back to where we were prior to the rate hike starting, we still weren't building enough uh, in terms of what CMHC says we should be building to, uh, you know, to get affordability back back in line to where it was in the early 2000s. Um, so there needs to be a substitution. Uh, we need to substitute public sector investment for the private sector. A lot of the government incentive programs have relied on the private sector. Here, private sector, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna rapidly change zoning so it's easier for you to build. Uh, the federal government's coming into cities and saying we're gonna give you some money if you rezone or approve construction projects more quickly. Uh, you can rezone all you want, but if no one's gonna build there, it doesn't really make any difference. And so we need more reliance on public sector investment, and this can come particularly in the form of. Um, purpose-built rental. I mean, this is one of the places where historically, you know, the federal government has played a big role. It hasn't for a while, but uh, it has, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And so you think here of, you know, zero interest loans provided by CMHC 
um, to a nonprofit provider that builds more affordable housing and continues to push up new housing investment um, and substituting in for the private sector that that uh, isn't going to do it in this high interest rate environment. I mean, I should say too that the that the rate hikes that we've already seen really take a long time to 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 take effect in reducing new residential construction yeah. uh, in the neighborhood of two years. The word about, you know, yeah, the rate hike started in March, but they didn't really pick up steam till last stump, last summer. So we're about a year in. Uh, so there is we haven't that even seen the full impact. We haven't even seen the full impact yet. It's interesting. Uh, we were talking, uh, Bill Thielman, who I don't, uh, you're probably familiar with as a uh, policy strategist uh, and I were talking last hour about uh, the supply of uh, uh, housing and uh, market value, that term of market value housing. And, you know, when you talk about the public uh, sector getting involved in setting prices or building, they still refer to, well, we will be possibly 20% below the market price for public uh, housing or for the housing we provide. That's still a lot of money. That's still expensive. In a city like Vancouver, where you're looking at $2,700 a month for one or possibly one and den apartment, boy, uh, that's not uh, that's not making anyone happy. What's the solution there? Yeah, I mean, certainly when we, we talk about affordable housing and we say, oh, it's 20% below sort of median rents or something like that, that's still very expensive in places like Vancouver. I mean, certainly in the short term, I mean, this is the part of the issue what we're talking about here. These are long term. It actually takes a long time to build a building, right? Um, for a house, it's maybe 18 months from the time you break ground to the time handing over the keys for an apartment, whether it's condo or, or uh, purpose-built rental. It's more like two years. But then you have to consider the fact that um, that's that's from when you broke ground. That's not when you got it permitted and you purchased the land and so on and so forth. That's more like four or five years when you're talking, and that's you know that's pretty optimistic when you're talking about new apartment buildings, for instance. Um, and so this kind of a this is a long term issue. We're seeing new construction come down now, but we're going to live with it for a long time. Shorter term, what can we do? I mean, some of the things shorter uh, term that we can do. Certainly looking at rent controls, which exist in British Columbia, but there are some uh, loopholes to them. You know, another approach is that there is a, there is a fair amount of purpose-built rental that already exists. Um, you know, instead of providing, or maybe in addition to providing loans at zero interest rates to nonprofit housing providers to build, you can provide them loans to buy. Buy out apartment buildings that are on the market anyway, convert them to nonprofit, reduce their rents in the process, and pull them out of the for-profit sector. Um, this is a way, at least in the short term, to try to directly address rents. I mean, rents have gone through the roof in the last year. We've seen the highest ever year-over-year increase in rents across the country in the in the CPI index and the inflation index. Uh, it's a very difficult situation for folks that are rent. You know, even the Bank of Canada, as you found out, uh, estimates that the worst impacts are, as you say, two years to hit. And uh, that's going to be two years, possibly even from March of next year. So we're looking at like two and a half, three years, possibly. Are we able to do something beyond what you mentioned uh, in terms of uh, even local governments taking more action to address this uh, just with the people that need uh, the housing? Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out here that interest rates act 
through new residential construction. This is where they have the biggest impact. So this isn't a mistake, right? I mean, we knew about this in advance, that when you jack up interest rates, you tank new housing construction. And this is one of the important ways that you pull down economic growth and attempt to control inflation. Uh, New housing construction, renovations, um, as well as purchase of, of big durable goods like things like cars. Those are the things that get hit really hard by big interest rate increases. So none of this is a surprise. I mean, that's not you know, the Bank of Canada didn't advertise that, of course, saying, look, we're going to control inflation, but we're going to do it by making houses a lot more expensive. But that's really, in the end, what's going to happen. When it comes to local governments, um, certainly, you know, changes to, to zoning broadly uh, are very important. That's a prerequisite for having uh, more dense housing. Uh, but it's really the other levels of government, either, either provincial or federal, that can potentially offer uh, the leverage and the uh, competitive advantage on interest rates that are now much higher for nonprofit providers. Um, And, you know, we build bridges, we build roads this way, uh, or certain types of roads anyway, um, where we take out a loan, we build the road, we we charge a toll, and we pay back the loan. That doesn't blow up government deficits per se, because, you know, you've got an asset, and the income from the assets paying off the loan. We haven't done this in housing for a long time, but housing absolutely makes money. People pay rent every month. And so this is a structure that we should be using more in housing, particularly uh, for folks renting, uh, trying to drive down those those rental costs. I mean, governments need to be more focused. They can't completely substitute for this decline in private sector investment, but they can focus on the affordability side of it um, and, and do it more directly than they have been. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.